Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music. Welcome to our evening service tonight. In these evening services, we are uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, so you can find your way there in your Old Testament among the poetical books after Psalms and Proverbs. And we're in chapter 3, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, but we're just going to be in the first verse tonight, and then we're going to go into those other verses in the couple weeks ahead. No doubt, I think, that this passage of Scripture in the first eight verses of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, is the most well-known uh, passage out of this book. Let me read it to you as you follow along, and we'll just read uh, these verses, though, as I said, we're, we're not going to go through them all tonight. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Familiar words, aren't they? I don't, I don't know how many of you grew up in the 60s, but I did. And having grown up then, these words came back to me in kind of a weird way. If you'll remember, there was a a young group of rock singers in the 60s, and in 1965, they made a song out of this passage. Uh, their group was called The Birds, B-Y-R-D-S, and this song was titled Turn, Turn, Turn. You remember that? Some of you are nodding yes, and some of you are saying, what are you talking about? Well, in the, in the 60s, we had all kinds of bugs and varmints uh, out there. We had birds and beetles and monkeys and... Uh, you know, all those kinds of things. But, uh, you know, they took, it, it, it was a, in the 60s, and the song came out in 65. I had to look some of these details up, but I, I can't get it out of my head now that I remember it. And I, and I want you to know, uh, in the 60s, I was certainly not a hippie, though a lot of my friends turned out that way. I think, I think the music that, that came to our culture out of the 60s did more to ruin our culture than probably any other thing that came out of the 60s. But it was a time of despair, a time of rebellion, a time of questioning everything, and it was a time of the Vietnam War. And many of the songs that were sung were anti-war songs. Well, that song, uh, you know, it would start off to everything Turn, 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 there is a season, turn, 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 if you remember those words, to every time and purpose under heaven. And they use these words throughout these verses exactly. That's the lyrics of a 1960s rock song, believe it or not. It's kind of folksy type of rock music in those days, except for one line. And on the very last phrase we have in, in uh, verse 8, they had a time to war and then right after that, the last line of the song was, I swear it's not too late. In other words, it was an anti 
Vietnam War song. Well, it only illustrates the fact that, you know, people that are in despair, people who are looking for some kind of answer, even from the Word of God, sometimes use the Word of God the way they want to use it. They may not have a faith look at it at all, but they find in these words sometimes that kind of thing. Uh, there are some uh, in a culture that may look at these words and use them to say, see, we can do whatever we want to do. There's a time for everything. There's a time for my sin. There's a time not to sin. There's a time to do this, a time not to do that. Some people would, would take it that way. Other people, as a matter of fact, uh, even among commentaries of men that write on, on the book of Ecclesiastes, there's one very well-known author, I won't mention his name, but you'd know him if I did, who, who th thought that, that uh, Solomon was looking at life through a fatalistic look, that everything has its appointed moments and there's nothing you can do about it. Everything that happens in your life, God has preordained to happen just like that, no matter what you do. And so he thinks that's the way uh, he looks at it. But I, uh, I copied a, a few good men who have given their opinion about these words. And let me just read a few of them to you. You'll know some of them. Matthew Henry, and, and so we, we go back to the 1600s, uh, and a Puritan writer said some of these changes are purely the act of God. Others depend upon the will of man, but all are determined by the divine counsel. Walter Kaiser, a more 20th century writer, said Solomon boldly argues the thesis that every action of man can be traced to its ultimate source, an all-embracing plan that is administered by God. So vast and so eternal, so comprehensive in its inclusion is this plan that man is both threatened and exasperated in his attempts to discover it by himself. You like Warren Wiersbe? I always like Warren Wiersbe. He said, you don't have to be a philosopher or a scientist to know that the times and seasons are a regular part of life. No matter where you live, were it, uh, were it not for the dependability of God-ordained natural laws, both science and daily life would be chaotic, if not impossible. David Jeremiah, last one. Solomon concludes that God is sovereign and in control, regardless of the imponderables that remain. Here, Solomon sees God as being present inside the fence with us. He's kind of walking the, the ground with us in these things. So I think we, they're closer to the mark in those kind of writings. Here, here's my kind of take or my proposition uh, to what Solomon is saying here, that God has many fixed laws, even physical laws and moral laws, and man has a responsibility toward them. We can work with God in the ups and downs of life, or we can work independently and learn the hard way. You are free enough to ask God for help and to pray that he would help you uh, take the right path in life. You are controlled enough by God to thank him and praise him for everything that happens in your life. So we have some great verses in the Bible. We'll read some of them tonight that speak about God's blessing and control to us. Remember when uh, Paul and Barnabas were up in Galatia and in Acts 14, uh, Paul was trying to convince these pagans about God's blessing. 
And he said to them, Nevertheless, he hath not left us, or not left himself without witness, in that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. I mean, every, every meal that we take, we give thanks, right? And we ought to do it because we realize God, through his providence, has allowed us to have that food. Paul even instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.2 to pray for everyone who's in authority as God works through them that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And so we can pray and we can ask God to do these things for us and yet we need to understand what he really has done for us. Just this morning, my, my pastor, the pastor I had as a boy, was born in 1900, so he's long since gone, uh, Dr. John Rawlings. But he had uh, his uh, oldest or second oldest son is Harold Rawlings, who's a pretty old man now. He does a, a, a devotion on Facebook every morning, and I read it because he's still kind of my pastor. This morning, he said, Our Creator has endowed us with free will. We can will to be obedient disciples of Jesus Christ, or we can will to be subservient to some person, philosophy, or thing. In spite of his very real limitations, a man can follow his own opinions and impulses and even become his own God. I'd say not bad words for a guy that's pretty old. <laughs> I like reading guys older than I am, so... So we'll go into this a little bit, and as a matter of fact, you see in your outline, in your bulletin, or on the screen, that, that we're only going to talk about the first verse, and then uh, over the next couple weeks, we're going to take each of these lines uh, separately. But I, I do want to, for, for a brief minute, have you notice the way these things are put together. You know, as you get to your Bible, you probably, it looks like a poem, right? I mean, you, you have a line here and a line there. And they separate. Matter of fact, my Hebrew Bible does the same thing. It sets it off so, so it looks like a poem. There are 14, 14 couplets. So number one would be a time to be born and a time to die. So those are couplets. Sometimes they're opposites. Sometimes they're synonymous. Sometimes, you know, just uh, reflect. But there are then 28, if there are 14 couplets, there are 28 lines or times that the word time is used, 28 of those. Why 28? It's kind of interesting, and many people have kind of approached it. I, I kind of thought of this. Uh, the Hebrew calendar, the, the calendar that the Hebrew people lived on is a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. We live by the solar calendars, why we have 365 days in the year. They, they're on a lunar calendar, so there's 360 days. And the, the moon, lunar calendar means it's based on the moon. The moon rotates around our earth uh, every 28 days. It makes a complete cycle around everything in 28 days. And there's a full moon then, you know, and then it goes through the phases, waxing and waning, and, and comes back around to a full moon. Well, it's kind of interesting. You know, our calendar, we're at the year 2024, based on, of course, the birth of Christ. Their calendar, the Jewish calendar this year, is year 5,784. <laughs> so they started a little earlier than we did, but they claim to have started at creation. 
5,784, that's only 16 years from, in their calendar, the earth being 6,000 years old. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Well, they had then a religious calendar. If you're reading your Old Testament right now, I'm, I'm just finishing the book of Leviticus, and here are all the feasts and the feast days. They're all based on the rotation of the moon and the various months. As a matter of fact, right down to the months, the days, and sometimes the times of the days when feasts had to be done or sacrificing had to be done, the time of the day that, that each of those was done to where throughout the rotation of those 28 uh, days as the moon goes around was their religious calendar, years, months, days, even sometimes the very hours. Maybe Solomon is reminding his Jewish hearers, uh, you know that there's a time to do this and a time to do that. That uh, I'll, I'll give you 28 of those uh, to think about. Maybe that's why I can't say for sure. You know, uh, 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 we're reading the, the New King James translation uh, uh, or the old here in our services, but uh, there's a good translation called the Holman Christian Standard. It's a newer, and it's a good translation. They translate verse 1 like this. I thought it was interesting. There is an occasion for everything, a time for every activity. <laughs> Just that simple. You have a lot of activities going on in your life, and there are times that you should and times that you shouldn't, basically. So we're just going to notice some things here, if, you, if you'll notice them with me. Uh, and I'm just taking the four parts of, of verse 1. There's a season, of course, for everything. So uh, for everything, there's a season. I'm putting season first. Uh, in Greek, it's kairos, which we have that, ver that uh, word often in the New Testament. I preached about it this morning, times and seasons. The Hebrew, zeman, if I'm pronouncing it right, means an appointment, an occasion, a length of time. So God has natural laws. He has seasons for things. And those seasons will come and go. They're natural. There's not a lot you can do about them, right? Now, that word can also be applied to, well, there's a season to eat dinner. <laughs> now, dinner to me is in the evening. Maybe it's at noon for you. I don't know. Uh, there's a season for breakfast, right? Uh, and, but there are seasons for the world that exists. As a matter of fact, let me take you back to Genesis 1.14, when God's creating the world on the first six days of creation. And and uh, on the fourth day, verse 14, God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs, for seasons, for days, and for years. Now, we go through those seasons, and there's not a lot you can do about it, is there? There may be war going on on this earth underneath the clouds, but above the clouds, those things are rotating just like they always have. Even when Noah got off the ark and after God kind of reshaped the, the world through the flood, Genesis 8.22, he says to, to Noah, he put the, the, the uh, rainbow in the sky, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God's faithful in that way. There's a season for those kinds of things. You notice in verse 2 of the chapter, 
not only a time to be born, a time to die, but there's a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to pluck up what is planted. Now, every farmer knows that you can try to uh, disobey that law if you want to, but it's not going to work very well. You better plant when it's planting time, and you better harvest when it's harvest time. There's not much you can do about that. You could say, well, you know, I don't like what God does, and I don't like his laws in my life, so I'm going to go plant at harvest time, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to harvest at plant time. You'll starve to death, but you, you can do it. You, you can try it if you want to. So there are certain things like that that you just have to follow. Science is a testing of God's natural laws and seasons. And so we invent things. We try out things in the laboratory. They run this experiment and this test to see how it works in God's laws. That's what they do. So from the wheel... <laughs> that works best when it's round, not square, still works best when it's round and not square, to airplanes that lift people up off the ground according to the laws of gravity and airflow and wing uh, uh, vacuum and all of that, to internal combustion engines, that if you mix those chemicals together and put a flame to them, they're going to explode. And we learned how to make, you know, uh, use cars. Not only that, to atomic and nuclear weapons of war or of power, we just had to learn what can you do with the elements of things that God has made. So there are certain times and seasons that you just have to follow. And there's not much you can do about it. Sin is destructive because there are moral laws in God's world too. And if you violate those moral laws and live in a way that the Bible calls immoral or abomination, then you're going to suffer the consequences that come from living that way. There's not much you can do about that. You're not supposed to live that way. God didn't make you that way. So sin is destructive. Righteousness is constructive. Righteousness will help you live right. right? Righteousness will help you live like the Creator who is righteous. And if you live like your creator, then things are going to work a lot better. And that's, and that's true for everyone, folks, not just for Christians, of course, these things. My wife is in the air right now somewhere in a long, hollow tube called an airplane. And uh, I'm glad it's working for everyone up there, <laughs> her included, because the laws of, that God has made in this world will work that way. So there's, there's a season. As we go through these, these uh, 14 couplets, We'll see some of those seasons again. But for everything, for everything in God's world, I thought, you know, it's true that even for the very earth that we live on and the very heavens above our head, do you know that the Bible says they came into existence at a time and they're going out at a time? Let me remind you, in 2 Peter 3, in that last chapter of his second book, he writes about the end of these things. He says this, looking for, hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens which will be, the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now that's going to happen whether you believe it or not. 
It's going to happen whether you're prepared for it or not. In the New Testament, Hebrews 1 and verses 11 and 12 says, they, speaking of the, the things that God made, the planets, the sun, moon, and stars, they shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall all wax old as a garment, and as a vesture thou shalt fold them up, and they shall be changed. But then he says to God, but thou art the same, and thy years don't fail. Put yourself in line with that with that immutable God, and this world will work a lot better for you. And then you get to the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21, uh, 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. So in a very large sense, folks, there's a time for this earth and a, and a time for this earth to be gone. There's a time for the heavens to be here. God said, let there, you know, in the beginning, God created uh, the heavens and the earth. Let there be light. There was light. And there's a time when that light will be gone because in heaven, uh, we will live by the light of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There's just a time for those things. Not only that, there, there is a time for the, we can call them the dispensations uh, on this earth the way God made them. For example, Ephesians 3, 2, you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me, Paul says, revealed to me. You and I live in a dispensation. That is a responsibility. We're to take care of God's household in this day in which we live. We call it the age of grace, the church age, this dispensation of grace. It started and it will end started at Pentecost, and when the rapture happens, like it or not, if you know the Lord is Savior, uh, it ends and we're going to heaven. So great. That's a good thing. Right after that, uh, in Ephesians 1.10, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, there he's speaking about that millennial kingdom. In the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. And how long does that last? 1,000 years. It starts here, it ends here. 1,000 years. We know exactly how much it is, the dispensation of the fullness of time. And I'll read you one more verse that has to do with those kinds of things. 1 Corinthians 15, the, the resurrection chapter. When all of the resurrections are done, verse 24, then cometh the end, when he, Christ, shall have delivered up the kingdom of God to the Father when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. That time is coming too. When he delivers it all up, it's all done. He delivers it to God, and we go into eternity. So there is a season for everything, even for the world uh, around us. Now, folks, there's a season for you. You were born at a certain time. You'll die at a certain time. You only have a certain number of years, and so you have a time to serve God. You won't have another time. This is your season for serving God. We will die, and we will be with the Lord, and we will be with Him forever, but do you want to get there and say, I wish I had that life to do all over again? I wish I'd have done something for God. I wish I'd have lived better for God. You won't have the time. How many people will stand 
on the brink of the lake of fire itself and know that they will be cast into that forever and think, I should have made the other decision. And it's too late at that time to go back. There's a season for everything. There's, there's a season in your life for growing up. There's a season in your life for falling in love. There's a season in your life for having children and raising children. And how long are they in your home? Not very long. You only have that much time uh, to put your life into theirs. And then we become older. We become grandparents. We have a stewardship now as grandparents. I, I feel very strongly about that. Your kids still need you so that they can raise their kids. And they are still your kids. And you need to put your life into them so they know how to put their life into their children. We, we never leave that responsibility as long as we're on this, on this earth. And, and there's a time to die. And good Christian people have seen that coming and realize that, the, that their end is near. And they say, you know, I'm going to a better place. I'm going to be better off when that happens. So we, we have seasons to everything, including those things in our own life. I told you a minute ago, I like Warren Wiersbe. I, I think he just, he just puts the cookies on the lower shelf, if you know what I mean. He knows, he knows how, to, how to take the complicated and say it in a simple way. He looked at this whole section in the book of Ecclesiastes, including the verses that we read, and he he put it this way, Solomon had four views of things that he's trying out and testing. He saw something above man, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, where we are. Then he saw something within man, chapter 3, 9 through 14. Then he saw something ahead of man, chapter 3, 15 to 22. And finally, he saw something around man, chapter 4, 1 through 16. Maybe that's what Solomon is doing. He's standing here and he's looking all around above and below. And the first thing he does is he says, you know what? I better pay attention to the creator and how he made this world uh, if I'm going to be successful and my life is going to have any meaning. So there's a season for everything. All right. There is a time, a time. Chronos, you know, in, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, chronos uh, means time, chronology. But in Hebrew, this word eth, E-T-H, you would pronounce it in English, means uh, everything uh, that comes along. And it was interesting in one dictionary, a lexicon, said that this word is almost always used in an adverbial sense. That is, uh, it's used with some action. And so here we have 28 times that it's used with various actions, basically. Uh, when this action comes, there's a time for it. When this other action comes in your life, there's a time for that. And a time will happen. So 28 times, a time to live, a time to die, a time to sow, a time to reap, and so forth. Look at chapter 8 uh, and, and verses uh, 5 and 6. Chapter 8, 5 and 6 says, He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Because for every matter there is a time and judgment, though the misery of man increases greatly. There's a time for these things. I mentioned at the beginning that some people interpret these things 
in a fatalistic way and the opposite. In theology, that's called fatalism or open theism. There's, there's a, fatalism means what? Fatalism means nothing I can do about it. God has every moment planned, and I don't need to make a decision. I don't need to try. It'll just happen. That's the guy, you know, who, who comes to the top of the stairs and falls and rolls clear to the bottom and gets up and says, boy, I'm glad that's over with because, you know, everything, uh, there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, is that what is happening? And I told you, there's this very well-respected man who, who takes it this way. Is that what Solomon's saying? That there's a time for everything, so I have no responsibility? I can't do anything about it? Is that what's going on? Maybe he's saying there are certain people who would look at it that way. The opposite of that, there's a, there's a belief these days that they have called open theism, theism meaning of God, and, and that's the opposite belief that God himself actually doesn't know the future. That in order for man to have free will, there's no way God could really know what he's going to do. And so open theism is this belief that even God doesn't know the future. Well, do you, does that make you feel good? <laughs> to think that even our God doesn't know what's going to happen, uh, what you're going to do tomorrow or whatever? I would say to you, there are tr two truths in God's word that are undeniable. And one is the sovereignty of God, and one is the free will of man. Now, theologians and good men have worked in their theological systems to kind of somehow put those two things together. And so different theological systems come out with different ways to make those two things work together. That's all I'm saying. But the fact is, the reason they do it is because you can't deny that God knows what's going to happen. God is in control. He's sovereign over everything. And yet, you and I can make the right choice or the wrong choice. We can do righteousness or we can sin. And it's not God's will for you to sin. He didn't make you do that. He didn't make Lucifer sin in heaven. He didn't make Adam and Eve sin in the garden. And he doesn't make you sin. How do you blend those two things together? Well, when you get that figured out, you write a theology book and publish it, and a lot of people will be, will be glad. Does God know everything that's going to happen? Absolutely. His foreknowledge, uh, his omniscience knows what you will do. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the past, the present, the future. He sees it all as one thing. Uh, we have no problem with understanding that. But man has a responsibility and a will that can obey or disobey, even though God knows. He didn't make you do that. You know what the last verse of this whole book, when we get to the very end, Solomon will say, well, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What is it? Twofold. Fear God, keep his commandments. God is sovereign. You have a responsibility. Fear God, keep his commandments. So, to illustrate it, in verse 3, there's a time to kill and a time to heal. There's a time to do right, folks, and that is not the time to do wrong. There's a time to do right. That time is not the time to do wrong. There's a time to kill and a time not to kill. Is there a time to kill? I'm sure the birds didn't, wouldn't like that, and that's why they got to the end of the, and they said, you know, I, I hope it's not too late. But 
Yes, there's a righteous war. God sent the Israelites into war. There's a time when you have to defend your country and defend what is right, and people will die because of it. We, America has always believed in a righteous war. There's a time to do it. Take the Ten Commandments. There's a time not to kill. It's called murder. Thou shalt not kill in the sense of murder. What do you do, according to the law of Moses, when a man has committed murder? What do you do with him? You kill him. You take his life. And so we have always believed that murder is wrong, but when, a, when murder happens, capital punishment is right. There's a time to do right and a time that doing the similar thing would be wrong. And if we'll follow God's instruction in these kinds of things, then we will blend that sovereignty of God that he knows what kinds of things should happen with when they should happen and when they should not happen. Right down to the moral laws that you keep uh, and uh, many people disobey. So there's a time for every purpose, thirdly, fourthly. For every purpose, in the Hebrew it means a desirable thing, a matter. I thought it was interesting that the, that the Hebrews that knew Greek translated it in Greek with the word pragmata, and we get our word pragmatic or pragmatism from that word. There's a, there's a, there's a time and a purpose of pragmatism. You know pragmatism. You know what that means. It, it means... Uh, you can figure out a way to do it. You, ha you can figure out how to get it done. Americans were all, have always been pragmatic. We can figure out how to make it work. We can figure out how to get it done. But that can be a good thing and a bad thing. If people who steal stuff online and steal your identity, in a pragmatic way, they have figured out how to do it. If they had put that same energy into doing good things, think of what they could accomplish in this world. Their, their pragmatism can be good and it can be bad. There, there's a passage in 2 Timothy 2 where that word is used. It's used a lot, by the way, in the New Testament. Remember this, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. The word affairs is the word pragmatism. A soldier can't become pragmatic. A soldier has to follow the rules. That he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And then kind of applied further... If a man also strives for masteries or he's in athletics, he is not crowned unless he strives lawfully. It may help you to cut the corner on the track, but you'll be disqualified. It would be pragmatic to do it, but you'll lose. Uh, there's good pragmatism and, uh, and bad. And then the farmer, the husbandman, that laboreth must first be partaker of the fruits. You better do it in the right seasons. You better plant right. You better fertilize right and all of those kinds of things. So pragmatism uh, can be good or bad. There's a purpose for everything is what he's saying here. Look at chapter 3 all the way down to verse 17. I said in my heart, verse 17, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there shall be a time there for every purpose and for every work. There's a time to do right and a time to do wrong. There's a pragmatism about it, and you need to know what that is. I, I love a passage in, that ends the Romans 9 through 11 section of our Bible. 
when Paul gets done with that great three chapters, Romans 11, 33 through 36, let me, let me read it to you. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Remember that? How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? In other words, oh, so you're going to counsel God and you're going to say to God, well, you know, I think there's a better way to do this. I think there's a more pragmatic way that I could do it. Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed to him. Oh, God owes you, doesn't he? He, he, he owes you for being so independent. No. Then, it, then the last verse is this. Of him, through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Of him, through him, and to him are all things. It all comes and goes through God the creator in this world. I think that's what, of course, Solomon is even getting at in saying these kinds of things. So Solomon is observing life, and he sees that it's, it has a vanity of purposes if it's not God's purpose. And it may not be the way you're looking at it. And then one last thought at the end, all of this is under heaven. Do you remember when I first started in our introduction to this book, I talked to you about modernism, postmodernism, and premodernism, and, and I used an illustration of a box that had the top open and then it was closed. Way back before modernism, the modernism that came into this world, the box of the world was open at the top. Man could look out and see God above, and all of these things that we're talking about were under God. Time to plant, time to harvest a time to, to do this good and a time not to do this. And we looked at God and we trusted God. Modernism for 200 years, the 1700s to the 1900s, closed the box, closed the lid on that box so that basically man was saying, scientists were saying, evolutionists were saying, it all happened right here in this box. There's nothing outside. There's nothing up there. Nothing outside of this box. You've got to judge and do everything according to what we see right here. Modernism, liberalism. What comes after that? Well, they called it postmodernism from the 1980s till now. And rather than opening the box at the top again, they opened the bottom, and there's no bottom to the box. There's no foundation. There's no absolute truth. There's no right and there's no wrong. Tell me, folks, is there morality in this world today? Sometimes you get to think, and I don't think there is. Is there anyone with character? Is there anyone with virtue? Is there anyone that doesn't lie who's actually an honest person? Does anyone fear God? Of course there are. <laughs> They're called God's people. But in this, the people who control things and the people who run this world and the people who... who uh, make things go around you wonder sometimes, don't you? Because it seems like the box has no bottom to it, much less is the top ever open. So, verse 11, let me remind you of that when we think about these things. He has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has put eternity in their hearts. You can't live in a box that isn't open at the top. You've got to look out into eternity. You've got to see God above all of these things. Except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. You've got to trust his sovereignty. So we bring it to an end, 
And next week, we will, we're going to go through these, just kind of take a, a phrase at a time. I think it'll be fun. We'll see what it takes a couple weeks anyway. And uh, until then, let me tell you, don't be a bird, a beetle, or a monkey. Be a Christian. And let God construct your calendar and your times. All right, stand with me, if you will. Let's pray together, and we'll sing a song together. Father, uh, thank you for these words. Thank you, Father, that even sometimes your word is a mystery to us. Because who can, who can understand the mind of God? Who can be his counselor? Not us. And so, Father, we search it, and we ask for your help, and we look for your wisdom. But, Father, in it all, we know our lives are here to serve you, and you've given us direction to do it. So help us to learn how to do that. And over the next few weeks, as we look at these great passages right here in the middle of this book, I pray, Father, you would teach us great things from your word and help us to be able to follow you in a better way. So bless now as we sing and as we turn these things over to you. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Gordon will come and lead us.